Morning, church. Morning. Thanks, uh, thanks, team. Thanks, Pastor Dwayne, for leading us this morning already. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you here, Pastor Todd. This is fun. Good to be with you, Jordan. Yeah, so uh, this morning, <laughs> we are beginning a uh, brand new four-week series called Is Christmas Unbelievable? And over the next four weeks, we're going to have that teaching take uh, place in a dialogue format between Pastor Todd and I as we really put the Christmas story under the microscope as we look at the aspects of it in depth, seeking to build an apologetic around Christmas and the nativity story that we all know so well, and of course, to reinforce these critically important truths for us coming into the Christmas season. And the series is actually based on a book that came out uh, like just a month or so ago Mm -hmm. uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin, Is Christmas Unbelievable?, which is the title of the series. And uh, we're going to walk through the four chapters of this book. And, uh, and, and help everybody to understand kind of the heart behind all this. But McLaughlin is, a, is an author you've used already before, yeah. and you want to say a little bit more about yeah, her? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, she's wonderful. Uh, her stuff is fantastic. Originally from the UK, she, she <clears throat> lives with her family in the US now. And uh, get this, she holds, she holds a PhD in English Renaissance literature and a theology degree. Yeah. So way smarter than the both of us, yeah, yeah. for sure. Together. But, um, but it's, it's, her stuff is phenomenal. She's, she's increasingly becoming a, a very important voice in evangelical circles and has a lot of important things to say on important aspects of our faith and how we relate in the culture that we're currently living in. She's written two books that I would recommend to anyone. The first is called 10 Questions, or sorry, Confronting Christianity, 12 Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And then the second book, which I would recommend to any parent of a teenager or preteen, is uh, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. She's got another book coming out called The Secular Creed, uh, Mm. which I'm really, really looking forward to. Uh, But really, she's just a phenomenal voice in our world today, like I said, on important issues of our faith. And we're going to give a copy of her Is Christmas Unbelievable book to each household. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But really, this book seeks to help us as readers see that the miraculous details of the nativity story are not far-fetched. Right, and that's important because there's obviously like so much myth that's already surrounding uh, Christmas. In fact, um, you know, I, I, uh, I used to be a school teacher, a private school, Christian school, and uh, before I came and did this, and, um, and I was teaching chapel one Wednesday in December, and, you know, I was uh, kind of, um, you know, idealistic and, and a little bit, I was bold back then, not so much anymore. And, um, and I decided that a really good topic for a December chapel lesson at a Christian school for the 160 students would be to debunk Santa. And I, I thought my days of going to the principal office were, principal's office were done when I was a student, but in fact, uh, as a teacher, I ended up there because there were several parents that were actually pretty upset that I had uh, Understandably. taken, you know, the 160 students, uh, some of them actually were still believing in all of that. So there were a few upset parents. I mean, like yeah. that's, that's back a number of years ago, but like... That was a long time ago, but yeah. like that happened in first service. You had people upset with you. Well, I, I heard that, that <laughs> maybe during the live stream, That's right. that there was some children in the room who maybe believed something different after this particular part of the dialogue. Well, it happened in our, in our family too, believe it or not. We were, I remember a distinct Sunday. It's still so vivid in my mind. We were still meeting at Emma King Elementary School. You were preaching on lying and used the illustration of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And it was that Sunday on the swing set beside Elma King Elementary School that my mom just completely shattered my worldview. And so 
I mean, I turned out okay so far, anyways. But okay enough to marry my daughter. Yeah. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. But clearly I'm like a one-man wrecking ball with respect to Christmas myths and holiday myths and, and all of that. So anyway, anyway, the point, the point, let's get back to this and hope <laughs> we don't shatter any more dreams here. I don't care if you tell your kids about Santa, I really don't. Like that's not really the point of this. That's for you. But the point uh, McLaughlin is making, the question she's asking is, can anyone who's too old to believe in Santa be expected to really believe the nativity story? And that's a really great way to put it. Right. I think that she, the way she phrases it in the book, because, because so much of the, the true and biblical aspects of the Christmas story, like Santa Claus, have become myth for people. Right. right? And not even just the Christmas story. So much, so much of the aspects of our Christian faith have become yes. like fairy tales for so many people in our world today. Yep. And, and for us, as we spend more time in our Christian circles within the church, we can begin to fall into the misunderstanding that everyone outside of the church even believes the essence of the gospel, even, or even the fundamental aspects of the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, when in reality, people outside of the church don't actually care any and, about this. And, and in fact, some don't care, mm-hmm. but most, I would say, don't even know. Right. They don't even know it. In fact, I had a conversation um, recently, just in the last month or two, with a, a close family member who uh, is, I would just say, spiritually minded, searching, you know, but said to me in a conversation, um, like, I, I doubt Jesus was really a real person, but I'm really inspired by him. Mm-hmm. And I was able to tell him, no, no, Jesus really was a real person or is a real person. And, and that's why... But that's know, where most people are coming from. Right, exactly. And that's why we've decided to take these four weeks and unpack these things together, because while that is the reality for, for people out in the world today... Christmas presents us an incredible opportunity to be able to proclaim the truths of the gospel because people are confronted with one of the critical aspects of our faith, and that is the Son of God stepped down into creation right. and began what, the work that God wanted to do in bringing salvation to this world. Right. In fact, this is the time of year when we're going to start seeing those Time Magazine articles, the, the National Geographic front page asking the question, who really was Jesus? Yeah, because right? they're all so interested in because, Jesus. They exactly. are still interested in 100%, Jesus. 100%. Yeah. And that yeah. gives us an incredible opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with those who need it. And so right. uh, that really brings us to the first question of this first message. It's a big one, and it's mm-hmm. a necessary starting point for us. Did Jesus actually exist? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, normally when we preach, if you're, if you're you know, accustomed to being here at Harvest, you know that it's at this point that we get the Bible open. I would read a passage. We'd start you know, working through that passage verse by verse because as believers, we accept the authority of God's Word, and, and so we're looking for God to speak a word to us today. Mm-hmm. But for this series, for the next four weeks, the thing we want to do is assume the posture of a skeptic. We want to interrogate the nativity story. We, we want to get to the bottom of it, so to speak. And so we're not going to start with the Scriptures today. We'll get there. We'll get to the Bible passages. We'll end uh, really that way. But we want to start with other historical documents and researchers um, from non-Christian sources. Mm-hmm. So that's what we really want to look at first. And I want to start with a, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Now listen, he is a, you got to listen carefully, he's a New Testament scholar who does not believe in God. Okay? He's a New Testament scholar who does not believe in God. He's a professor at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He wrote the 2012 book, Did Jesus Exist?, which is actually our question for the first part here. Did Jesus Exist?, the historical argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's a 
New Testament scholar who doesn't believe in God, but who does believe that Jesus actually existed as a man and who was born in Nazareth or was from Nazareth. Okay. So here's, here's what Ehrman said. The reality is, and whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. This view is held by virtually every expert on the planet. So we're setting aside here the question of, of who Jesus was and and just talking about the fact that, that he existed. And, and what Ehrman's saying here is that it's, it's plainly accepted yeah. by historical experts that Jesus was a real person, yes. that he, he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. But my question with, with this quote is, is who are the experts that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about his contemporaries. He's talking about experts today. The, the, the vast majority of experts today agree Jesus was a real person who lived in history. But the experts today are building their case on experts from back then. So ancient experts, ancient historians and writers who wrote, who were witnesses to in some cases, to the events of Jesus, to the reality of, of who Jesus Christ really was and is. And so um, we're going to look at some of these, uh, and three of the names are Josephus, Tacitus, and Pliny. But before we even get to those three, a basic principle that we have to lock down here is that writers who wrote closest to the date of the events they're writing about are generally speaking going to write more accurately. The less time that passes between the event and writing about it, the less time that passes, the more reliable those documents are going to be. And an example of this that I read actually in um, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christmas, some of you may have read that book, very similar to this one. Uh, Strobel comes at it from the perspective of a journalist, and he gives the example, actually he's interviewing Craig Blomberg, who's from Denver Seminary, and Blomberg makes, makes the point about Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great died in 323 BC. The first biographies about Alexander the Great were written in the first century AD. So the first information that we have, recorded information that we have about Alexander the Great is 400 years old. And yet it's widely accepted that he lived. Widely accepted. Right. That nobody is denying that Alexander the Great lived and conquered much of the known world at the time. And that the essential details, what Blomberg says is, everyone accepts the essential details and considers those details to be trustworthy in those histories and biographies that were written about him, even though they're 400 years removed from the actual events. Now to, to these three other authors, these non-Christian authors who wrote. The first one is Josephus. Some of you will recognize that name. He's a Jewish historian who wrote in the first century. And he wrote this, he wrote uh, The Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote this in AD 62. And he's speaking about a man named James. This is an entry in the Antiquities. A man named James the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. And then he talks about certain others who were stoned. So he's talking about the execution of Jesus, what we would call Jesus' half-brother James, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. But he was executed um, by stoning with some others. And Josephus is recording that. But the interesting marker about that is Josephus notes that James was the brother of Jesus called the Christ. And so even though it's about James, it's, it's authenticating the fact that Jesus was a real person 
in the historical documents, and that was widely known at the time. The second is Tacitus, and Tacitus is a uh, Roman historian, second century Roman historian, and he was recording an entry about the emperor Nero and the burning of Rome. So we all know the history around Rome burning. Everyone pretty much agrees in history that Nero burned Rome himself, but then wanting a scapegoat and seeing the Christians as a convenient scapegoat for that, he blamed the Christians. That would amp up persecution on them, and he'd get to rebuild Rome because he had essentially burned it down. This is the entry. This is uh, from AD 64, Tacitus, now a Roman, non-Christian historian writing. He speaks about a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd called Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the proconsul Pontius Pilate. So again, Tacitus is acknowledging the fact that these followers that Nero was, these Christians that Nero was blaming in Rome were followers of Jesus Christ, who was acknowledged to have been executed by Pontius Pilate in the first century. The third example is Pliny. Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor of Turkey in the Roman Empire, AD 109 to 111. And he was looking for a way to deal with Christians in his particular region, the area he was governing. And he wrote a letter to the emperor asking for advice on how to persecute the Christians. And one of the notes that he puts in his letter to the emperor is that they have a habit of singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Again, another reference to Jesus. So we have these three sources, all non-Christian sources, that are pointing to, the, to the, the, the truth that Jesus had, in fact, lived and died in Judea in the first century. Now, remember, all that we're looking for at this point, all that we're looking for at this point is evidence that Jesus existed. We're not trying to prove that Jesus was or is who he said he was or what his followers made him out to be. We're simply looking for evidence in history, in documents, that would substantiate that Jesus actually existed. And that's just three examples. I mean, there's, just there's, three, there's more. There's way more for sure, and we could yeah. talk a lot about that. But, but McLaughlin kind of sum, sums up this section in, in a really concise way, and I like it a lot. She says this, rather than it being naive to believe that Jesus walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, it's actually naive not to. Right. Because whatever the reality is about who Jesus is, what we can understand here and agree on is the fact that he was a real Jewish man who lived in Judea and Galilee in the first century, went about teaching and doing good things, and was condemned and crucified by the Romans and Pontius Pilate. And then at minimum, his followers carried on his legacy exactly. from there, yeah. right? So that's the non-Christian sources. Why don't we go uh, to, the, to the New Testament now, to the Gospels, okay. and answer this question. How trustworthy are the Gospel accounts of Jesus? Well, before we, we get to the, the Gospels, let's hear from our atheist New Testament scholar again. Well, uh, he actually considers himself agnostic. Agnostic. atheist. Atheist, okay. Splitting hairs. Okay. He doesn't believe in God. Okay. Uh, but here's, here's what, what Ehrman said again. The four Gospels, remember, he's talking about the four Gospels. The four Gospels are the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. And, and this is the view of all serious historians of antiquity, of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore mm. atheists. So you hear 
a man who doesn't believe in God say that, you realize that, the, that according to this man, his research, his conclusions, the Gospels are the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. But what he's not saying is that he believes everything that the Gospels say. If that were true, Ehrman would be a believer. And he's not a believer. He doesn't believe in God. Ehrman does, in fact, subject the Gospels to intense scrutiny, to what's called textual criticism. But what he is saying beyond all of that is that these sources, these four Gospels, and this is the quote from him, these are the oldest and best sources for information about Jesus. Now, here's part of the reason why he says that. There are many ancient manuscripts for various books that have been written throughout history. We're going to come back to that principle we laid out in the beginning. And you may not have known the names that I mentioned earlier. You may not have known Tacitus or, or Pliny. But if you were listening in high school at all, I know that's a reach for some of you. <laughs> but if you were listening in high school at all, you know the names Aristotle, Plato, Homer. Yes? You know those names? Some of you were definitely not listening in high school. <laughs> But let's compare some, some ancient manuscripts to determine their reliability. So we have this chart, and this is available in the notes. We're going to compare some ancient manuscripts. So we have uh, six books listed here, the book and publication date in, in parentheses beside it. So Tacitus's uh, Annals, uh, AD 110 is when they were first published. The earliest copy that we have is from AD 850 to 1050, not quite sure. So it's at, very, at the very least about a 750 year gap between the original publication date and the, and the earliest copy that we have of it. And in fact, we only have 36 copies from antiquity of Tacitus's annals. And yet, widely considered to be an accurate history of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Now you look at Plato's Tetralogies, published in the 400s BC. The earliest manuscript is from the 3rd century BC, so it's 200 years old, the earliest manuscript we have. We have 238 of those. You see Pliny there, Aristotle's writings, written in the 4th century. Earliest manuscript, 850 AD. That's a gap of 1,200 years. Now, we do have 1,000 copies, manuscripts of Aristotle's writings, but a thousand year gap or a 1200 year gap. And yet historians agree, this is what Aristotle said, and no one's disputing that. Then Homer, written 800 BC, earliest manuscript 400 BC, 400 years between, 1900 manuscripts. But then look at the huge difference between these five major works of antiquity. Widely considered to be history. Yes, right? accepted as reliable. Yeah the New Testament, written in about a 50-year span of time at the end of the first century. The earliest manuscript we have is from AD 125, which is a gap of just 30 years. Now, here's what's so significant about 30 years. Eyewitnesses were still alive. You couldn't just write something and not have it critiqued, not have others you know, come out and say this isn't accurate. Eyewitnesses were still alive. Eyewitnesses wrote some of the documents. And in fact, beyond that, when you compare it to all these other documents of history, there are 6,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. Well, 
and not even just 6,000. Like, that's the crazy thing. Those are 6,000 partial or full manuscripts written in the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek. Greek right. That's not even counting the Latin uh, documents they have, the other ancient languages. The, right. the realistic number of all of the languages that we have of the New Testament is more like 25,000 partial or full manuscripts. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah. So the, again, we're coming back to that basic principle. We're trying to determine the reliability of the Gospels here. And the point is this, the closer the gap between publication date and the earliest manuscript, the more reliable that manuscript is going to be. And these were all, of course, hand-copied. That's why we're talking about this. These were all hand-copied, which sometimes invariable, invariably introduced errors or glosses into text or, or commenta commentary would be put in along the way. And so the principle really is this, you have a lot less of that happening if you squeeze the time. So less time, here's the formula, less time equals fewer glosses equals more accuracy. Mm. And McLaughlin says this, by all the usual tests for historical documents, the gospels stand up very well. The manuscript evidence that we have for the gospels is extraordinarily good by comparison with other documents that we take to be historical. And she's citing work, when she says that, she's citing work by Peter Williams, who wrote a book, Can We Trust the Gospels? And, um, you know, with that in mind, the New Testament manuscripts are more reliable than the widely accepted publications of these ancient authors. Again, no one disputes that Homer wrote the Iliad, or that the Iliad is what he wrote it to be. Mm. And uh, so we should, be, we should be looking at the New Testament going, this is reliable. This is a history of Jesus Christ and the church. But of course, even in saying all of that, and with the, with the monumental amount of evidence that we have to the reliability of the New Testament and the Gospels, and then by extension, of course, the Christmas story, that does not preclude people from challenging the reliability of, right. of the Still New Testament. Yes. And there's a number of those challenges. One of the most significant ones, though, of course, uh, to the history of the Christmas story uh, comes uh, in, in relation to the date of the census, right? Which, right. which we hear detailed in Luke chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And of course, the census is a big deal, right? It's a big deal in the nativity account because that's what got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Which right? is so important. Yeah. This is like major plot moment in any story because you need to, you need to in order to advance the plot, you need something that's going to get someone from here to there. So like all those Hallmark movies that you watch. In order for the, the girl to leave the city and her boyfriend who wears suits, there needs to be some crisis in her hometown so she can go back and meet her old boyfriend in the plaid shirt and, and marry that guy. So, but something needs to happen in the town for her to leave the city at Christmas. The fact that you're comparing the Bible and a Hallmark movie is just atrocious. They understand the they illustration, do. They though. They do get it. They do get it. So the sense is, of course, the big pivotal thing that gets Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem, and uh, critical, of course, because <clears throat> it's fulfilling prophecies written hundreds of years before, right? right? That Jesus being born from the line of David would need to be born in the town of David in Bethlehem. And so that, of course, that challenge is based on, in fact, what we have recorded from the Jewish historian Josephus. And, and many scholars, including Josephus, would date Quirinius's census to AD 6, okay? Which would have been about 10 years after the death of Herod. Of course, Jesus born during the reign of Herod. So those timelines wouldn't line up. Right. And many people, of course, take this to mean that we then can discount the reliability of the Gospels and the validity of Luke's Gospel and, and consider that he probably just made it up. Right. 
obviously based purely on logic in the data that we have, that's not true, right? That's not reliable. Many scholars have offered solutions to the problem, one of the main ones being that, that Luke was right, Josephus wasn't aware of the earlier census. And then again, just thinking logically about this for a second. If Luke needed a reason to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, he could have used something way easier than a worldwide census. And, and something that couldn't be confirmed like that. Right, exactly. I mean, like, Joseph's uncle got a new barbecue. Right, or, they wanted and, to go or, and grill some steaks. Or, you know, Mary thought the hospitals were better in Bethlehem to give birth Or in. midwives, because there probably were no hospitals. Right, right, exactly. Right. So exactly. better midwives in Bethlehem, honey, let's pack up and go down to Bethlehem. Right, exactly. Yeah. There you go. So... All of that aside, we've established that, that Jesus was, in fact, a, a historical person who lived. He claimed to be the Messiah. He was executed by the Romans. We've given the possible explanation for the census issue. Yep. But let's get back for a second. Let's get back now to the Christmas story, to the biblical account of what yep. we understand the nativity to be, because the Christmas story would have us believe some truly incredible things, right? So here's our next question. What is the real Christmas story? Well, before we get into the specifics of what is the real Christmas story, I want to have a little fun with this with you. I'm going to give you a little quiz okay. here. Um, I'm going Probably to give test you, my Bible knowledge. You're going to test go your Bible knowledge. I'm going to yeah. give you several aspects of the Christmas story as it's written in the, in the Gospels. Okay. And you're going to tell me if the fact I'm giving you or if the information I'm giving you is fact or fiction. I feel like we're going to ruin Christmas for some people right Probably, here, right? probably. Okay. All right, you ready for this? Yep, let's go. And you can play along here and at home. Just play along and see how many of these you get. Fact or fiction. Start with this one. Mary rode on a donkey. Fiction. That's correct. That's yeah, fiction. There's no donkey mentioned, no donkey in, mentioned the in the story in the gospel. Yep. Secondly, an innkeeper turned them away. No innkeeper. Fiction. No innkeeper. That's also fiction. Yep. Correct. You're two for two. Thanks. Yep, Good for you. Go. Uh, number three, Jesus was born in a stable. Mm -mm. Not true. That's fiction. Yeah, right. certainly the detail's not in the gospel account. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely not as stable as we would view them or as our nativity scenes would depict them, correct. that's for sure. All right, ready for this one? Number four, Jesus didn't cry. If you like Away in a Manger, I'm sorry. Fiction, not yeah. true. Of course, not Jesus true. was human, and so he would have cried when he was hungry, yep. and I mean, he was just a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, number five, uh, Jesus, oh, there's so many things here. Uh, Jesus was born, I think I just tipped my hand. Jesus was born on December 25th, AD 1. Not true. Not well, true. Like, two things, two things wrong there, right. okay? Probably not the winter, probably not December, okay? Not probably. Definitely, because if you, if you look at the way that, that shepherds interacted in that time, yeah. the, what we have understanding about the yep. shepherds in the nativity story would not line up It was springtime. It was right. April, May, somewhere springtime. in there exactly. when and, he was born. And between 6 and 4 BC, not AD 1. So you're telling us that the entire calendar dating system, Correct. which is AD in the year of our Lord, yep. that that whole thing is messed up by four to six years. Correct. It's not really 2021. A whole other it's story. more like 2025 yep. or 2027 That's right, right now. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, not born on December 25th, 81. Not, here's, here's a, oh, three... Three kings visited Jesus the night he was born. How on brand is this for him, right? Yes. Yeah. Not true. If you've been here for any, any length of time, you know how much of a trigger thing this There's is for There's so Todd. much wrong in that statement. <laughs> there weren't three. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. They weren't kings. Yep. They weren't there the night he was born. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's right. Don't get me started. <laughs> Number seven. How are you guys doing at home? Everybody uh, doing okay with these? Yeah. 
All right. There were some pretty sad people after the nine o'clock service this morning leaving here. Their Christmas completely shattered. Mm-hmm. Um, number seven. Oh, this will do it for some too. This is one that got mentioned this morning. Um, the Christmas star shone over Bethlehem on the night he was born. Fiction. Not true. Yeah. Tough Not one true. though. Yep. Yep. Again, related to the Magi story, happened after Jesus' right. birth, right? right? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the, little, the little drummer boy played his drum for him. <laughs> I think that was an easy one. Fiction. Yeah. That was easy. No rumpa bump bum. No. Yeah. No. None. The angels, number nine, the angels sang at the manger. Not true. Fiction. No evidence in Scripture that the angels actually sang. Ever. Ever. In any passage with any angel, there's no mention of singing. None. Wow. Yep, there you go. All right, number 10. Everyone at the nativity was white. (laughs) It's just not true. Despite all the artwork. All the artwork. Not true. How many white people were at the manger? Zero. No white people were there. Yep. Just get over that. Get over it. Yeah. It's the Middle East. Yeah. Who do you think was there? Yeah. Okay. So let's. All right. Let's unpack the real. That's a whole different series. That's that's a whole other series. Let's get to the real aspects of the story now. Let's get to the true Christmas story, looking at the gospel accounts for details, as we've established, of course, the oldest and best sources of information for Jesus. Yeah, so there's two gospels, of course, that have nativity details in them. That's Matthew and Luke. Mark and John don't mention the nativity at all. And so what I want to lay out for you now, if you're taking notes, there's five like key elements of the Christmas story that are absolutely critical information that God's communicating to us through this account through this narrative. And the first is this, uh, angelic appearances and announcements. These aren't, these aren't just garnish on top of the story or something to make the story more interesting or more spectacular. Uh, but notice uh, there were multiple uh, angelic appearances and announcements. Luke 1 uh, speaks um, to Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then he communicated the whole plan to her. That's just one. Uh, The angel also appeared to Joseph multiple times. Uh, Before this all happened, the angel appeared to Zechariah to talk about John the Baptist coming into the world. He was going to be the precursor, announce the arrival of the Messiah. It was Jesus' cousin. We know the shepherds also had encounters and announcements from angels. And, and this is all in the story to show us this is a miraculous move of God, mm-hmm. that the angels are appearing, delivering messages directly from the Lord to say God is now intervening in history to fulfill the plan that he had promised through the prophets all through the Old Testament. Uh, this is God's intervention to bring about salvation to the world. And so the angelic appearances and announcements so critical to the story. Secondly, the virgin birth. Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that's euphemistic, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Luke records this, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the virgin birth is absolutely necessary if we're to have a sinless Savior who could die for us. 
If, the, if, the, if, if he wasn't sinless, then he would only be dying for his own sin. It took a sinless Savior to be able to take our sins upon himself and then be able to offer his life as a sacrifice for us. If he wasn't perfectly holy and not conceived in sin because the sin nature passed on from Adam to every one of us through procreation, and that needed to be interrupted miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that Mary was a virgin, the sin nature did not pass along to Jesus, and Jesus was sinless without sin so that he could sacrifice his life on it. That's the only way for the cross to be effective for us. Thirdly, the incarnation. Matthew 1, to 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet uh, this is Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human. And again, this is absolutely critical to his sacrificial mission, that he would take on flesh, that he would become us, and that we could have this identification with our Savior. Right. Hebrews 4.15. Right? Awesome we do verse. not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So right? awesome to have a God mm-hmm. who identifies with us in that way and that we can identify with him, yeah. with, with him. It's a God who suffered in all the ways that we suffer. Emotions, fatigue, everything. All of it. He had it all. So that's the incarnation. He became human. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fourth... The witnesses and two different groups of witnesses that are so critical, again, to the story. Shepherds, first of all, and and Luke, this is kind of like a summary of that passage, but there were shepherds out in the fields, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing, the shepherds said. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, notice, they're witnesses, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The angels had come and announced who this was, told them to go. They had gone. They had worshipped. Then they left Bethlehem, and they went and told everybody that they could about what they had seen. The Magi were the second group, Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus, now, after Jesus was born. They weren't there that night. You see that? Everybody nod your head. You got it? See? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Uh, They came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, these two groups are very unlikely witnesses. First of all, shepherds were like the lowest of the low classes. That they they didn't have any esteem or respect in, in Israeli and Jewish society. To pick them as witnesses would have been as if you picked no witnesses at all. And yet God chose to reveal this, to have shepherds as witnesses, because he wanted to communicate something about the gospel to us. He wanted to tell us that anyone can come, that this is for the vulnerable and for the weak. It's for the poor. It's not just about the powerful and the wealthy. On the Magi too. The Magi. Mm -hmm. They're pagan astrologers. Yeah. Like they're, 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 they're from another country. They're not Jewish. They read the stars. They advise and counsel royalty. Mm-hmm. They're kingmakers. They're wealthy. And they come. And pagans are used as witnesses to the birth of the Messiah. God communicating that this isn't going to be just a Jewish thing anymore. This is going to be for all nations. 
And so these two witnesses, so critical to the story, again, it's not just, it's not just adding cute elements to the, to the charming Christmas story. Every part of it is intentional on God's part. Rebecca doesn't mention anything about the Magi in the book. Were you okay with that? Or? I was so disappointed that she didn't mention anything about the Magi. I was like waiting for her to drop the bomb and to let us know. But so that's really the only weak part in the whole book. For sure, they were not there that night. She doesn't really say that they do. She just doesn't go into it. The Magi appeared 18 to 24 months later, but... Let's not go down that rabbit hole. That's going to, yeah. that's just, we'll that I can't wait to meet the Magi. Like, I'm just going to go hang out with those guys when we get to heaven. <laughs> Seriously, they're just the most intriguing characters. So, all right, anyways, the fifth one is the mission. So angelic appearances and announcements, virgin birth, incarnation, the witnesses, and now the mission. Listen to this. Matthew 121, this is the angel speaking to Joseph. She will bear, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. This is it. For he will save his people from their sins. This is the point of Christmas. Mm -hmm. We think this is the point of Easter. But this is the point of the nativity. This is not simply... Christmas and the nativity is not simply a heartwarming story to inspire us to live better lives or to care for each other or to be generous, which are all the themes that you hear at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Be a better person be kind to others, be generous with what you have. That's become the message of Christmas. We hear these things and what it's done, honestly, those are all good things. You should be a nicer person. You should care for others. You should be generous. But when that's the actual message of Christmas, you've sanitized the gospel right out of it. Mm -hmm. And you've turned Christmas, what you've really done with it is you've moralized Christmas and you've removed any power that it has. It just leaves people with, the warm, with warm fuzzies about the holiday season. But now what they are, they're just more moral, good, generous, kind people who are going to hell. That's not the point of Christmas. It's about this mission. Jesus came to save their people from their sins. We need saving. And Jesus came to save us. And so in summary, here's what, what McLaughlin says. There's something very touching about the story of a divine child lying in a manger, heralded by angels and hated by rulers, but worshipped by both rich and poor, by fellow Jews and foreigners, by stargazing scholars and uneducated shepherds. It's a lovely yuletide tale for the kids, so long as you stop before Herod has all the boys under two years old in the region killed but it's also a story rooted in history. Jesus was undoubtedly a real person in history, and his birth, life, death, and claimed resurrection undeniably changed the world. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And, and so the reality of the Christmas story, as we've established here this morning, is that uh, Jesus did, in fact, exist. Historical documents that we have prove that. And we've just spent some time talking about the mission of his coming because at the core of the nativity story is the gospel. That the Son of God left heaven and stepped down into the earth that he created to save his people from our sins. Mm -hmm. and, and while we can bolster our confidence in the historicity of the events of the nativity, ultimately this is still a matter of faith. You have to believe it. 
You do. And, and our concern, of course, if, if I could just borrow from the message we heard last week in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius coming to faith, and, and one of the things we talked about in that message last week was this concern that we have that we would only look for salvation to solve our immediate problems. That's, it's kind of like, God, what, what can you do for me right now? And we fail to look at, the, at the, the bigger problem that God is trying to solve in our lives. We forget that there's a major crisis that needs to be dealt with, and that crisis is our, our sin. We become so pragmatic about our salvation rather than getting the long-range view of what God is really trying to do, the eternal view of what God is really trying to do. And McLaughlin actually uses that phrase, the bigger problem. That's what we need to be looking at even at Christmas. And the Jews of the first century were under the same dilemma because as they awaited their Messiah, they were waiting for their Messiah. It's just that the majority of them missed that it was Jesus. And the reason why they missed that is because the Messiah they were looking for was one who was going to solve their immediate problem. It was going to be a Messiah who was going to come and reestablish the Davidic throne, reestablish Israel as an independent country, and push out the Romans. That's what they were looking for. And God says, you have a much bigger problem than the Romans. You have a problem of sin, and that's the one I want to solve for you. I'm sending my son to solve that problem. I'm sending the Messiah to make it possible for your sins to be forgiven. And that's a problem he's still solving today. That's right. And to come back to what we kind of talked about off the top, you know, this is the reason why we've decided to have a series like this at this point in time, mm-hmm. right? Because Christmas, you know, it's Christmas and Easter, right? We often say are the two times of year where people are more open to hearing the truths of the that's gospel. Right. And so this is important for us to have, not just in our minds to be able to defend the historicity and the validity of the truth of the Christmas story, but to have locked into our hearts as well. And to be people who believe that this is real, that this is true, and the importance and significance of that for us. And then for others as well, to go out and tell them about it. And that's going to conclude our time here for this week. But of course, we are going to be back for the next three weeks to talk about different aspects of the Christmas story and to continue to just unpack these and to to continue to bolster our own faith and our own confidence in the reality and validity of this story. And like I mentioned before, as you leave the worship center this morning, we're going to be giving you a copy of this book, just one per household. And we'd love for you to read it, but not only just to read it yourselves and as a family, but also to think about and pray about who you would have the opportunity to share this with. And actually, it was really cool this week. I saw on social media that that Rebecca and her family actually had the chance to go to their neighbors Mm -hmm. and to give these out along with a couple of other Christmas baskets and goodies and things like that. And again, just an incredible opportunity for us to be able to share the gospel and witness to the truth of who Jesus is and why that's so important. Now, if you're uh, watching online, make sure you email us, info at harvestberry.ca. We'll get, make sure that we get a copy of this to you. But like I said, for those in the room, it'll be available to you on your way out this and, morning. And let me say, too, like there's an opportunity here not just to give a book to someone, but to say to them, hey, look, we're doing this series at church. Would you like to come with me next Sunday? Or at the very least, here's the, here's the link to our live stream or the on-demand later. This will be uploaded mm-hmm. uh, this afternoon uh, for viewing as well. Send that link to someone who who you think might be interested in hearing this. And let's pray together that God does an awesome work in people's Mm -hmm. uh, hearts uh, this Christmas. Yeah, that's right. And to have those intentional conversations with those around us. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace in our lives. God, we thank you for the remarkable truth that you put a plan of salvation in place even before the foundation of the world. 
And that plan would include your very son mm. stepping down from eternity into creation, being born as an infant, living a perfect sinless life, and going to the cross and dying in our place and being raised to new life three days later. That's right. God, we glorify you in that. We thank you for that. We thank you, God, not only for the fact that you put that plan in place, but God, that you breathed out the words of Scripture that we would know who you are, what that plan was. And not only did you breathe these out, God, but you preserved Scripture for thousands of years, the validity and the truth of it, that we could have it in our hands and we can be confident in what we read and hear. So God, continue to grow our confidence by your Spirit in the truth of this. Would we be people that are founded on the gospel in every area of our lives with the truth of the Christmas story? truly change us and shape us and mold us more into the image of Christ as you long for us to be. But God, not only that, would this also cause us to be so passionate about going out from this church, from our homes, into the world that you formed, into the world you love, be able to proclaim this truth. So give us opportunities, Father, this Christmas, this week even, to be able to share these amazing truths with others. We thank you for this time, Father. We thank you for leading us in all of these things. We pray that it would just continue to glorify you all the more in our lives and in this church. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.